0: great to be back for another evening of studying God's Word together and to consider the eternal truths that are contained therein. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn with me to the book of James. James chapter 3 is where we're going to be at this evening and Lord willing for the next several weeks, possibly months, depending on how long it takes for us to work through this chapter. For our purposes tonight, we're going to be focusing on verses 2 through 5 of chapter 3 and you'll recall from last week's lesson that we're going to begin each verse, or excuse me, we're going to begin each lesson by reading the verses that are contained in this sixth section in the book of James. So though we'll be focusing on verses two through five, for the sake of context and for the sake of trying to understand the flow of James's thought, we're going to read the first 12 verses of chapter three to get us started tonight. So with that in mind, can I get a volunteer to read verses one through six, Hannah, and a volunteer to read verses seven through twelve. Thank you, Whip. So, um, as these two volunteers read those set of verses, you guys, please, feel free to follow along in your copy of God's Word. And then, of course, after doing so, we'll dive into our verses of focus for tonight. So, Hannah, kick us off. Verses 1 to 6. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers,
1: for you know that we who teach will be judged with prayer strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small number, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small number, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and our Father, and with it we curse him who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both Blessing enters, my brethren. These things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine
0: produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh, pleasant, full Thank you very much, guys, for reading. During our time together last week, we were able to resume our study in the book of James after a five-month hiatus by diving into the sixth section contained in this New Testament epistle. And as you'll notice at the top of your handouts, we've chosen to label this portion of James's letter in the following way: modeling Christ-like conduct through speech. Modeling Christ-like conduct through speech. That is the central heading that's going to structure everything that we're going to be covering through verses 1 to 12. This section of the book of James, as I mentioned moments ago and last week, it spans from verses 1-12, to and it provides us with another way, out of all the ways we've already considered in the book of James, this is yet another powerful way in which Christians are are instructed to live out their faith before a watching world. In fact, as we've said many times before, if we were to summarize what the book of James is all about, we could say that its central theme, its main teaching is this. True saving faith will always be demonstrated through how we live. So if the theme of James can be summarized as true saving faith will always be demonstrated through how we live, we could also say that the theme of James 3, 1-12 could be summarized as true saving faith will always be demonstrated through our pattern of speech. That's the correlation between this sixth section of the book of James and the central theme undergirding the book of James as a whole. As we talked about last week, by way of getting this sixth section of James's letter started, we noted that there are four warnings contained in this section of James's letter. Four warnings about the temporal and eternal significance undergirding human speech as testified to in verses 1 to 12 of James 3. And as clearly implied throughout this section, The believer will be thoroughly equipped to model Christ-like conduct through their pattern of speech if they would pay attention and ultimately if they would obey the instruction that James provides his readers with by way of warning. So if you want to honor Christ with your tongue, then you need to obey the warnings that James provides at this point in his letter. During our analysis of verse 1, we were confronted with the first warning I labeled that subheading a warning about the tongues condemning power, a warning about the tongues condemning power as revealed in verse 1, and in delivering this warning, James specifically focuses on self-identifying Christians who desire to serve in teaching roles within the local church. The reason for beginning this section with the warning contained in verse 1 is due to the fact that there is a higher degree of accountability that teachers of God's Word will have before their Creator. Although all Christians are certainly called to honor God with their pattern of speech, the Lord expects spiritual leaders to do so all the more. As such, in a very real sense, James' warning in verse 1 could be paraphrased in this way. I truly believe this paraphrase really cuts to the chase with what James is trying to communicate in the opening verse of this chapter. If you do not have the ability to ensure that you will not lead others astray through the words that you speak, whether about biblical doctrine or about the application of Scripture's doctrine to one's life, then you should not be entering into any kind of teaching role in the church. If you cannot ensure that your doctrine is sound and that your application of Scripture's teaching is consistent with the Word of God, if that's not something that you can ensure in and of yourself to, to ultimately prevent brothers and sisters in Christ from stumbling, then you have no role being in any kind of teaching capacity. You, you have no basis for entering into a spiritual leadership position. My friends, teaching God's Word is a very, very high calling. And with it comes a great responsibility before the Most High. Even as a believer who has been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and has been saved by the sovereign grace of the Triune God, there is still much that the teacher will have to give an account for when they appear before the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ. Whether you're teaching young kids in Awana or preschool, or elementary age, or if you're teaching future pastors at the level of the seminary. All teachers of God's Word will have a higher, a more stricter judgment when they have to give an account before Jesus. And we talked a little bit about what that Bema Seat judgment experience will look like for those who serve in the world of teachers. So for the listener, if you've not done so already, I would encourage you to go back and listen to our previous sermon. We also discussed last week regarding those who would teach God's Word, the reality that there are sometimes unbelievers who serve in that particular capacity. For those who are unconverted and serve as a teacher in the local church, their judgment will be at the great white throne judgment, and that judgment will be one that is utterly unbearable. No self-identifying Christian, therefore, should ever enter into a Bible teaching role with a hasty or a nonchalant attitude. Because the judgment is great even for the believer at the Venus seat, And even more so than that, any false teacher, any unconverted teacher of the Word of God will have a dreadful judgment before the Most High at the Great White Throne. Judgment. So it is very, very important For us to consider, a lot of what James writes in verse 1 by way of introducing this sixth section of his letter, it's very, very important for us to ensure that we have a constant awareness. If we desire to teach, and if you're currently teaching God's Word in any capacity right now within the context of the local church or in any ministry capacity for that matter, it's very important for us to have constant awareness of the fact that there will be a higher degree of accountability before our God. This reality should consume any person who aspires to spiritual leadership within the church. That's recap from last week. Verse 1, James chapter 3, verse 1. This takes us now to the second warning that James is going to provide us with in this section of his letter. And it is this warning that we will be surveying for the rest of our time together tonight. You'll notice that warning summarized in your handouts. Subheading number 2. Under the main heading, remember, main heading, modeling Christ-like conduct through your speech. Here's subheading number two, working our way through verses one to 12 of chapter three. A warning about the tongue's controlling influence. Verses two through the first half of verse five. Subheading number two, a warning about the tongue's controlling influence. In verse two through the first half of verse five, James transitions from warning his audience about the tongue's power to condemn and he now segues to warning his audience about the tongue's power to control. Did you catch that? Verse 1, James is warning about the tongue's power to condemn, particularly with reference to those who serve in the teaching capacity in the local church or spiritual leadership roles in the local church. Tongue's power to condemn, verse 1. Verse 2 to the first half of verse 5, tongue's power to control. And in keeping with the flow of James's argument that was initiated in verse 1 to help us unpack what James is going to say by way of the second warning in this section, I've added three subheadings underneath this subheading. So you can call it a sub-subheading, if you will. Three sub-subheadings to help us structure verses 2, 3, 4, and the first half of verse 5. You'll notice that labeled in your handouts as we move forward tonight. Let me just give that to you by way of preface, and then we'll start getting into the text. The first sub-subheading, if you will, corresponds with verse 2, and I've chosen to label that subheading as describing the tongue's controlling influence. Describing the tongue's controlling influence. Second subheading, corresponding with verses 3 and 4, illustrating the tongue's controlling influence. Illustrating the tongue's controlling influence. And lastly, first half of verse 5, Third subheading, or third sub-subheading, if you want to play along like that. Verse 5, applying the tongues controlling influence. Applying the tongues controlling influence. So, if you caught that in that preface, you see it right there in your handouts. We've got a description from James. We have an illustration from James. And we have an application from James. James about how the tongue can exercise control over a person's life. Description, illustration, and application. It's my prayer that each of us here tonight to work our way through this lesson and discuss it uh, at the very end of our time together tonight. It's my prayer that each of us will be all the more diligent to heed the instruction that James offers at this point in his letter. So with that being said, by way of introduction, with this outline at the forefront of our minds, Let's now transition into our examination of verse 2 and see how James describes the tongue's controlling influence, the description of the tongue's controlling influence as found in verse 2. Notice verse 2 again with me in your Bibles. If you have it pulled up in front of you. James writes this. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible as usual. Verse 2, For we all stumble in many ways, If anyone does not stumble on what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. The word for at the beginning of verse 2 functions as a connecting word, and it indicates that James is building off the argument that he already started back in verse 1. Moreover, The Greek phrase that James uses for if anyone in verse 2 is also a phrase that can be used in reference to any specific person at any specific time. There's a universality to what James is going to communicate to his readers here in verses 2, 3, 4 in the first half of verse 5. So whether speaking in reference to James's first century Jewish Christian audience that he originally wrote this letter to, or in reference to us who are studying this letter some 2,000 years later in Edna, Texas, every Christian who will ever read the instruction contained in these verses must pay careful attention to what is being said, to what James is stressing here by way of warning. This isn't just something we can just say, well... You know, that's great, James. You wrote this to those people. But, you know, we live in 2022 now. We, we're more sophisticated. We appreciate what you wrote back then, but it didn't really apply to us. No, my friends, the way this is structured in the original language indicates this is universal. This is perpetual instruction. This warning applies to you and me, just like last week's warning applies to every teacher who would ever serve in the church. Having said that, in our efforts to dissect verse 2, to work our way through this piece of tonight's text, it's important to note that James uses several key terms in this verse that he's already used up to this point in the epistle. Perhaps you'll be um, reminded of some previous lessons that we've had in the book of James. The term that James uses here for stumble was used back in verse 10 of chapter 2. The term that James uses for perfect was used in verse 4 of chapter 1. And the term that James uses for bridal was used in verse 26 of chapter 1. As you've heard me say on numerous occasions, one of our greatest aids in understanding the meaning of a biblical term is seeing how those terms are used by the same author in other parts of their writings. In the case of James, we don't have to look much further than the same letter in order to get an idea of what he means by the terms stumble, perfect, and bridle. It's very convenient because James doesn't have any other canonical literature for us to evaluate. So thankfully, in order to see how these words have been used by James, we just got to look to the book of James itself. And that will give us all the clarity we need about these terms. And if you were to do a word study on each of those terms in their previous context. And if you were to compare the meaning of those terms with how James uses these specific words here in verse 2 of chapter 3, you'll find that James is using them in a very consistent fashion. In other words, James does not stray from the manner in which these words were presented at earlier stages in his letter. Their definitions remain identical across the board. So with these observations in mind, Allow me to remind us of how James uses these key terms that we find in verse 2 of chapter 3, namely stumble, perfect, and bridle. Start with the word stumble. The Greek word that James uses for stumble conveys a picture of somebody losing their footing very briefly after getting their toe caught on something on the ground. I like to think of when you're walking and your, your, your toe just... Barely clips a slightly elevated piece of carpet, you kind of stumble a little bit, right? We've all been there, we've all done that. If you play football, you've heard of the turf monster. That's kind of what this word communicates. It's like the turf monster just got up and grabbed your toe ever so slightly and kind of stumbled. That's the word picture that James used with this turn back in verse 10 of chapter 2, and that's the very word picture he's using here in verse 2 of chapter 3. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because James used this term to emphasize the reality that for most people, the sins they commit in this life and before watching world are not deemed as severe. And I put severe in quotation marks. We'll talk about that uh, a little bit more in just a few moments. But carry this with me for a second. Thinking about how the world views quote-unquote, acceptable sins. Sins that are not deemed as severe. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you were to survey the majority of people in our society, even many of those who claim to self-identify as followers of Jesus Christ, you'd find that there's a tendency for them to dismiss certain sin, dismiss certain shortcomings, simply as activities or behavioral patterns that are common struggles For all humanity. Let me just give you a few. Many of you guys may be aware of some of these quote unquote common sins or acceptable sins or common struggles that all people wrestle with. Perhaps you've wrestled with them yourself at some point in your life. Perhaps you know a family member or friend that's currently battling these struggles. Telling a white lie, desiring to promote oneself, indulging one's lust for members of the opposite sex by looking at pornography ingesting controlled substances that are over the legal limit, or perhaps you're under the legal age and you're utilizing some of those substances. These are so-called common struggles. They are acceptable sin by most in society, even those who self-identify as Christians. Christians. And I think if we were to look at some of these acceptable sins, and this is just a sampling, there's far more we could turn to, but if we were to look at these objectively, white line, desiring to promote oneself, underage drinking or over-drinking if you are of the legal age, smoking marijuana, looking at pornography, certain things like that that, so-called, that are so-called acceptable in society that are they're really not that big of a deal, we could agree to some extent that they're not as bad as unlawfully taking another person's life. They're not as bad as robbing a bank. They're certainly not as bad as engaging in the act of adultery outside of the covenant of marriage, engaging in sexual relations outside of the covenant of marriage. I mean, some of these quote-unquote acceptable sins, they could certainly be worse, right? There is some truth to it that they're not as severe. But nevertheless... Even the so-called common struggles for all people, even the so-called acceptable sin, they're still serious when viewed through the lens of Scripture and when viewed against the backdrop of God's holiness. As such, even if a secular society sees minor sins as not that big of a deal, God still does, and His Word still regards committing such sin as stumbling. So whether speaking of a minor sin or a major sin, the outcome of one's sin will result in eternal judgment in hell if a person does not repent and surrender their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ by faith alone. And for those who've come to saving faith in Christ, the entirety of the Christian life is filled with battles against petty sins, these so-called acceptable sins, and we're going to continue to struggle with them until Christ returns or calls us home. That's part of the process of sanctification. Why am I going here? Because, my friends, this is exactly what James has in mind when he says that we all stumble in many ways. How is he using this term? He's using it to refer to a very commonplace sinful behavior that all people, whether Christian or non-Christian, struggle with. And yes, it's not a severe sin. Again, severe sin in quotation marks. This isn't a severe sin that he's going to address insofar as it's compared to murder or adultery or robbing a bank or any other types of sin that we could see manifest in this world. But it's still sin nonetheless. And James wants to warn his audience about the consequences that follow from committing this sin. What sin am I talking about here? The sin that I'm talking about here is those who do not exercise control over their speech. Those who do not exercise control over their tongue. In the context of verse 2, James rightly assumes that some people in his original audience are undergoing ongoing battles with the discipline of controlling their speech. How do I arrive at this conclusion in terms of the context of verse 2. Well, look at what James writes in the remainder of the verse. Again, we've narrowed it down and stumbled here. Let's look at the surrounding context. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. According to James, again, zooming out here, how he's using these terms in the context of verse 2. According to James, if a person's lifestyle pattern is not marked by stumbling in what he says, if a person's lifestyle pattern is not marked by the inability to exercise control over the tongue, then that person can be described, according to James, as perfect. What does James mean when he calls somebody who does not stumble in what he says as perfect? What's he saying here? I thought nobody was perfect. Well, as we noted just a few moments ago, the Greek term that James uses for perfect in verse 2 in chapter 3, it's the same word he's already used back in verse 4 of chapter 1. And when we studied that portion of James's letter, we noted that the word mature is a more precise translation of the Greek term that he used in that context. And because he's using the same word in this context... And to be consistent interpreters of this letter it only makes sense to interpret this word uh, for perfect as really being more closely that of mature. If you have a Christian Standard Bible, which I know the Youth Committee gave to some of our youth a few years ago here, to, uh, here at FBC Edna, I know many of you guys are still at FBC Edna, so you might have one of those copies of God's Word. If you have a Christian Standard Bible translation, or if you have a Holman Christian Bible translation, those are just a few popular level English uh, study Bibles in which the term mature is being used here in James 3.2 instead of the term perfect. And if you have a New American Standard Bible, if you have a Reformation Study Bible or a John MacArthur Study Bible or one of those sorts of resources You may even find that there's a footnote marker next to the word perfect, indicating that the word mature is a more precise alternative. That this word could be more precisely communicated from Greek to English as mature. So why does that matter? Well, when understood from this perspective, James is not arguing that the mark of a true Christian is the ability to never stumble in regard to what he says. The mark of a true Christian is not always being perfect in your speech. That's not what James is saying at all because none of us are perfect. We all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 7 indicates that we're always going to battle with sin in this world as those who've been justified but are yet being sanctified until Christ returns or calls us home. But when understood as mature... We understand the Greek term is being translated into the English language as mature. We find that James is arguing that the mark of Christian maturity, the mark of true saving faith is connected, inextricably linked with a pattern of life that shows control over what comes out of your mouth. In other words, do you want to know if you're a true follower of Christ? Do you want to know if you are a mature believer Does the pattern of your life indicate that you exercise control over your tongue? That is what James is saying here. Christian maturity, spiritual maturity is inextricably linked, directly connected with control over one's speech. Control over one's tongue in addition to properly understanding the meaning of the Greek term that James uses here for perfect, he also uses the present active tense of the verb stumble in this context. In other words, he's saying that this isn't just something in which this is a one-time thing. If If the Greek term that he uses for perfect was not properly translated as mature... Then, why would he use the present active tense of stumble, indicating that this is a repetitive, ongoing pattern of life, not something where if you just fail in one regard here, then you're not really spiritually mature? You're not really a true Christian in the sense of how you model control over your tongue. And what makes sense for that, given the grammatical construction of this verse? Stated differently. If the habitual and ongoing pattern of one's life is marked by the ability to exercise control of the tongue, then that person is a spiritually mature follower of Christ on the one hand. And in regard to the particular wording here in verse 2, it demonstrates that James has direction in mind, not perfection. He's emphasizing the trajectory of your life, not a one by one by one, every jot and tittle. That if you ever mess up in what you speak, then you just might not be a true Christian. You might not be a mature Christian. He's saying that this is a trajectory here. You need to make sure that the trajectory of your life manifests, that you have exercised control over your tongue. It's very important to rightly interpreting what James is saying in this context. Now, as we've already mentioned, moving on to the next key word here in James 3.2. The Greek word that James uses for bridal was used back in verse 26 of chapter 1. And it's, again, like we saw with stumble and like we saw with perfect. The term for bridal here in verse 2 of chapter 3 It's consistent with verse 26 of chapter 1. This particular word means to curb or to control. And notice this. There is a direct connection for James between spiritual maturity, exercising control over one's tongue, and exercising control over one's body. Notice this here. Verse 2, when James says that the perfect man or the mature man is able to bridle the whole body as well, what he's saying is that there is an organic connection between spiritual maturity, controlling the tongue, and controlling the body. According to James, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if a person is spiritually mature, then they will be able to exercise control over their pattern of speech. There is a direct organic connection with spiritual maturity and exercising control over the tongue and exercising control over the body. It's a link, or I should say it's a chain with multiple links fixed together. And if a person is able to exercise control over their pattern of speech then that individual will also be able to exercise control over any sinful lusts and sinful appetites that originate from our fallen, sinful human nature. So if I could bring it down for you very simply, true saving faith manifests itself in terms of our speech pattern as a habitual pattern of exercising control over the words that come out of our mouth. And if that's true of you, You can control the tongue, indicating you're a spiritually mature believer and ultimately a believer at that. If you're able to exercise control over your tongue, you're also going to be able to exercise control over the lusts and the appetites that originate from your flesh. Listen to what John MacArthur notes in his commentary on the book of James. This is a direct quote from that commentary. MacArthur writes, if we can control our tongues, which respond so readily and limitlessly to sin, then controlling everything else will follow. If the Holy Spirit has control of this most volatile and intractable part of our being, how much more susceptible to His control will the rest of our lives be? End quote. My friends, this is the description of the tongue's controlling influence as set forth by James in verse 2. As we continue in our exegesis of tonight's passage, I want us now to transition into the second sub-subheading that corresponds to verses 3 and 4, namely the illustration of the tongue's controlling influence. We just saw the description of the tongue's controlling influence, verse 2. Now, notice with me verses 3 and 4, the illustration of the tongue's control and influence. In verses 3 and 4, James provides his readers with two real world examples, two real world illustrations. he uses as a means of warning his audience about the tongue's ability to exercise control over a person's life. One real world example, the first one, pertains to a bit in a horse's mouth, and the other example, the other illustration he uses in this context pertains to the rudder of a ship. And when viewed as a whole, perhaps the weightiest component of these illustrations could be summarized in this way. Don't miss this. If a person is not able to exercise control over the tongue, then the individual will inevitably be controlled by the tongue. Did you catch that? If a person is not able to exercise control over the tongue, then that tongue is going to control the individual. You either control your tongue, and in doing so, you exercise control over the rest of your body. Or, based on the illustration James is going to use here, If you don't control your tongue, you're going to be controlled by the tongue. That tongue is going to control your life. That's what James is getting at here in verses 3 and 4. And to further punctuate this sobering reality about the tongue's ability to control our lives, he uses a word to bridge both illustrations that are communicated in verses 3 and 4. That word is directs in my New American Standard Bible. Directs. The word directs is a Greek term that means controlling and leading in the direction something or someone ought to go. Controlling and leading in the direction that something or someone ought to go. Having awareness of the meaning of this term will really help clarify what James is going to say here and the forthcoming illustration. So let's just reread verses 3 and 4 together in order to ensure that these illustrations are fresh on our minds before we really dive into the weeds of what James is going for here. So let me read verse 3 and verse 4 again. And then we shall break them down accordingly. James writes, Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. Now I don't think what I'm about to say is going to come as a surprise to y'all here tonight, but I think everybody in our youth group that still comes on Thursday nights and probably everybody that knows us in the community of Edna, Texas, would regard Bell and I as city slickers. We're not from the country. We certainly didn't grow up on the coast. So I'm just going to come out right out of the woodwork here and say prior to studying for this lesson, I don't really have much understanding of anything regarding what a bit in a horse's mouth has to do with controlling. I knew a little bit, but I didn't really understand all the nuances, and I certainly couldn't tell you anything about a rudder on a ship at sea. So I just want to let you know what I'm about to share with you about a bit in a horse's mouth and about a rudder of a ship this is coming through my own research into these things. It's not first-hand experience. So You've got to, to take my word for it on the basis of experts in these fields. So, hopefully my research will prove useful for us as we seek to impact what James is saying here. Let's start with the bit in the horse's mouth. Let's start with that illustration. According to Horse Health Products, that's a real website, horsehealthproducts.com, a bit is defined in this way a piece of metal or synthetic material that fits in a horse's mouth and aids in the communication between the horse and the rider. Now, I'm just going to go on a limb here and say that bits have evolved substantially over the past 2,000 years, but the Greek term that James uses for bits appears to be consistent with the definition that we just gleaned from horse health products. So, The application is is still the same. It may look differently as far as what bit was used in the first century and what bits we use today in 2022, but the definition is still relevant here. The principle that James is teaching is still applicable to us. I learned in studying about what bits look like today that these are very, very small objects compared to the 1,000 to 2,000 pound animal that it uses Uh, to control that animal with. So you've got this thing in a horse's mouth. I mean, it's not just teeny, teeny, tiny, but when compared to a 2,000-pound animal, I mean, the the comparison gap is huge in terms of size. It's even larger when comparing a rudder to a ship. Listen to this. According to Reed's Naval Architecture for Marine Engineers, the average size of a ship can be anywhere between 60 and 70 times larger than that of a rudder. So the little rudder that dictates the way the ship is going to be directed and controlled when it's out at sea, 60 to 70 times smaller than the ship itself. So just as we considered with regard to the bits that would be placed in a horse's mouth, and the gap in size between the size of a ship and the size of the rudder, it's extremely massive. I mean, the proportion is, is outlandishly wide when comparing these two items. So I think, and as I reflected on how I wanted to drive James's point that he's trying to make in these verses home to you tonight, I, I think what we can say is that the common denominator undergirding both illustrations in verses 3 and 4 could be stated in this way. Just as large and powerful objects can be controlled by very small devices, so also is the human body controlled by one of its smallest features, namely the tongue. Because I'm thinking James, as he's writing this, he's anticipating objections. He he, he uses verse 2 really to just describe the reality that the tongue can control your life. And he's... He's probably got people in his original audience, the people he's writing this letter to, he's just assuming that there's going to be some people there are say, yeah, right, James. There's no way a tongue can really exercise that much control and influence over my life. I mean, it's such an insignificant part of my human constitution. And I can just see James, if I can use my sanctified imagination, and again, gleaning this from the context of what he's writing in his letter. I can can see James saying, you know what? Okay, small, insignificant, you really don't think it can control you. Go look at the horse controlled by that little bit in its mouth, and go look at the ship at sea, look at that little bitty rudder, and look at that massive boat. We see this in the real world, that there are small, small, Devices used to control large and powerful objects. Why could the same not be said about the human tongue's relationship to the human body? I see James really engaging in a little bit of a polemical exercise. He's trying to anticipate objections which motivates him to use these very real-world illustrations to supplement and corroborate what he said back in verse 2. So just as large and powerful objects can be controlled by very small devices, so also is the human body controlled by one of its smallest features, namely the tongue. As Douglas Moo observes in his commentary on these verses, quote, "...just as the bit determines the direction of the horse and the rudder the ship, so the tongue can determine the destiny of the individual." When the believer exercises careful control of the tongue, it can be presumed that he also is able to direct his whole life in its proper, divinely chartered course. But when the tongue is not restrained, Moo concludes, small though as it is, the rest of the body is likely to be uncontrolled and undisciplined also. End quote. So for this point in tonight's lesson, we have seen James describe the tongue's controlling influence in verse 2. We had a description of the tongue's control and influence. We've observed James's illustration of the tongue's control and influence as found in the illustrations he uses in verses three and four. So description, verse two, illustration, verses three and four. And as we prepare to wrap up our lesson tonight and hopefully have a fruitful time of group discussion. I want us now to close by examining James's application of the tongue's controlling influence based on what he says in the first half of verse 5. How does the first half of verse 5 bear witness to James's application of the tongue's controlling influence? Well, notice what he writes in that portion of verse 5. He says, "...so also the tongue is a small part of the body..." And yet, it boasts of great things. So by way of application, the first half of verse 5 concludes the second warning that James provides in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 3. And upon an initial reading of that verse, it would appear that James is saying that the tongue is a vehicle in which man can manifest the sin of arrogant boasting. That's how I took it when I first read this verse. Okay, James, you're, you're just pointing out that, that the tongue is able to 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 boast and commit the sin of arrogance. If you look at both the Old and New Testaments, you'd have a valid basis for arriving at that interpretive conclusion. On the testimony of both Old and New Testament, we find that the tongue often functions in a capacity of arrogant boasting. We also know from our real-world experience as well that the tongue is used in that way so common. You guys in public school probably hear people boasting all the time with their tongue. Perhaps you boast from time to time with your tongue as well. Of course, I don't think any of you guys would ever do such a thing, but for the sake of argument, of course. But just to establish the biblical precedent, just in case anybody listening to this recording has never read what the Old or New Testament says about the tongue's capacity to engage in arrogant boasting, let's have a volunteer read Psalm 10.3, Old Testament Perspective. And then let's have a volunteer read 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 for a New Testament perspective. So two volunteers to read those. Again, what we're, what we're doing here, we're trying to provide how in Old and New Testaments, there's a basis for seeing the tongue as a vehicle through which sinners can boast arrogantly. So let's look at those texts together. Somebody other than you two. Psalm 10.3 and Second Timothy 3, 1 through 5.
1: I got 2 Timothy.
0: All right, Joanne will take the long one. Who wants to take the short one? Michael, go for it, buddy. Psalm 10.3. the mm-hmm. wicked
1: the desires of his soul and the, and the one greedy for vain and renounces
0: the Lord. Very good. And then Second Timothy 3 1 through 5, Joanna.
1: But notice that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty. Lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and
0: from such people turn away. Amen. Very good. Thank you, guys, for reading those texts. So we just seen Old New Testament. You could see what James is saying here in the first half of verse five of chapter three. Is him just saying the tongue is a vehicle through which sinful man can boast? That's a possible interpretation. It was my initial interpretation when I read this uh, verse in preparation for tonight's lesson, but the more I study and after engaging with a few helpful commentaries, I think there's an even more narrow um, message that James is wanting to communicate here, and I think it fits better with the context of what he's been saying in verses 2, 3, and 4. Here's what I think James is really getting at when he claims, back in verse 5, the tongue is a small part of the body... And yet it boasts of great things. Here's what I think he's getting at here. In context, James is pointing out the tongue has a legitimate basis to boast of its ability to control the course of our life. James is not only trying to say that through our use of the tongue, we boast often of great things. We engage in the sin of arrogant boasting. I think mean, that's certainly true. We just saw it from the Old New Testament. That's a reality. But in context, James is basically pointing out the reality that, listen, hey, the, the tongue has a legitimate basis for boasting because that tongue, that little bitty part of your body, it can really control your life. Just as a tiny bit can boast of controlling and directing an animal as powerful as a horse, just as a tiny a Tiny insignificant rudder can boast of controlling and directing the course of a ship that's sixty to seventy times larger than it, so also can our tongues boast of controlling and directing the pattern of our life. Do you see the practical significance of the warning that James has embedded into this portion of his letter? If you're still not convinced, maybe the following illustration. We've heard James's Holy Spirit-inspired illustration, so I think that's far better than any illustration I can provide you with. But let me just try to add another illustration here, another perspective for you to consider as we think through James's argument about the tongue's ability to influence or to control our lives. Listen to this fascinating study that I stumbled upon in preparation for tonight's lesson. According to a study conducted by Scientific American in 2006, it's estimated that the average person speaks 160 words per minute. If this is an accurate estimation, then every six hours, the average person says enough words to compile a 50,000-word book. If you're in school right now, That's equivalent to a 100-page, 12-point font, double-spaced Times New Roman paper. So 12-point Times New Roman font, double-spaced, 100 pages. You ever written a document like that? I'm having to write one for my doctorate. Um, Lord willing, it'll be between 150 and 200 double-spaced pages, 12-point Times New Roman font. But, my friends, this estimation indicates that every six hours... You're writing more than half of a doctoral thesis with the words that you speak. That's what this study is saying. Every six hours, based on this average amount of words spoken per minute at 160, 160 words per minute. Every six hours, you've got a 50,000-word paper if all your words were transcribed on a page. Now, this study certainly notes that we don't spend every hour of every day talking as much as we do at other points in time. In fact, some people talk far more than other people talk depending on their profession, and depending on their home life, depending on what their family looks like. But on average, this study done back in 2006 estimates that most people, you get just to the average ordinary person in the world, they're speaking about 16,000 words in a day. So you and I... I probably speak a lot more than you guys do because I'm a pastor, part of my job to talk often. But most of you guys are speaking about 16,000 words a day, give or take. So what does that look like over the span of a year? In 365 days, that would entail you're speaking about 5.85 million words. Just shy of 6 million words in a year if you speak the average 16,000 words Per day. Now, how about a lifetime? Average life expectancy is about 80 years. So in 80 years, at 16,000 words per day, you would speak about 467 million words in your life. They were all put on page. It would be a lot of pages worth of words. You may speak far more than that. Like me, I'm going to have... Over half a billion words probably spoken in my lifetime, doing this as my vocation. So, a lot of words that we're going to speak in our life, right? Now, by a show of hands, let's have some group participation now. By a show of hands, how many of you believe that if you were to take the 467 million words that you would ever speak and produce a written transcript of those words, then you would be able to determine the kind of life that you live? Let's say that somebody who lived... 2,000 years from now took your 80-year lifetime of words written down, all 467 million of them. They never met you. They didn't know anything about you. And they looked at that. All they had about you was what's on the page. The words you spoke in this life. Do you believe that they would have an accurate reflection of who you are? What do you think? Show of hands. How many of you guys agree that they would they would be able to say, yep, I can tell you exactly the kind of person that man or woman was. I've got every word they ever spoke right here. Show of hands. Do you agree? Okay, she's got her hand in, up.
1: Okay, some people,
0: some people are partial, okay. Some people don't have their hands up. That's fine. Okay, so here's the that's the example I want to give you. Now, let me drive the point home. According to Christ, Jesus is always the answer. He's always right, right? So if if we agree with Jesus, we're in good company. Well, according to Jesus, the totality of the words that were spoken during our lifetime will bear witness to whether or not we exercise genuine saving faith. And our words will be able to, in a final analysis, determine the kind of person that you and I were in this life. Look at Matthew 12, 36 and 37. Very, very sobering passage of Scripture. And Christ says this in that context. I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. It's taught by Christ there. The words that a person spoke during their lifetime tell you everything you need to know about them particularly spiritually right spiritual our spiritual state the most important part about us so if if they can tell you everything you need to know about us spiritually they can certainly tell you everything that they uh, they can certainly tell you everything that you would want to know about somebody in every other facet of life so Christ is saying here that if you look at every word you ever spoke i can tell you whether or not you were a believer i can tell you exactly who you were in this life, and notice he uses the term justified. Is he saying that your words are like some sort of work that, by your words, then you're going to be declared righteous in God's sight? That that that's the means of salvation. Is that how the word justified is always used? No, it's not. How does James use the word justified? The half brother of Christ. The word justified can also mean to vindicate, to prove to be genuine, to authenticate. So what's Christ saying there? Matthew 12, 36, 37. He's saying that your words will either vindicate your profession of faith or they will lead to your condemnation. Your words will either prove that you were a follower of Christ or they will prove that you never knew Him. And now I want to make sure this is clear as well. This is not the only test of faith. And sometimes, unbelievers can speak a lot better than believers do. Seriously, meet a Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, a Muslim in some cases, Roman Catholics in some cases, sometimes they can really put forth really good pattern of speech. They do it from an empty heart, right? And we'll talk about that, Lord willing, in a few weeks about the heart's relationship to the words that we speak, and We've talked a little bit about that in past studies in the book of James. But more often than not, a good rule of thumb, biblically, is this. One of the surest differences between an unbeliever and a believer is how they use their tongue. Or if I could just put it very, very simply for you. Show me how you use your tongue. And I'll tell you everything that I need to know about the direction of your life. And about where you're going to spend eternity. I got that from Steve Lawson, so um, I can't take full credit for that. But seriously, guys, let that sink into your soul as it does mine. You know, I say I joke around a lot with people. I, I mess around with my wife, but it makes me wonder: you know, are those careless words that I'm going to have to? answer to Christ for? I'm going to have to give an account for them at the Bema seat. These words I'm preaching to you tonight, I'm going to have to give an account at the Bema seat for them. Show me how you use your tongue and I'll tell you the direction that you're heading in both this life and in eternity future. I say that with fear and trembling, my friends. Because I know I have much room for improvement in my pattern of speech, I fall short of the glory of God. As I'm sure each of you would admit that you do as well. I know I'm going to have a stricter of judgment to be seat as a teacher of God's word, as a spiritual leader in the context of the local church. So I just I don't want you guys to think tonight that I'm coming on my on my holy high horse that I've got it all figured out. By God's grace, I have seen fruit. There's not a shadow of a doubt in my mind. That I'm in Christ by the grace of God, but this is a convicting message for me, and I hope it's been one for you, a very helpful and needed challenge for you to wrestle with. So moving forward, as we begin to transition into our time of group discussion, I just want to commend to you, implore you, plead with you, and even with myself, that we would take the warning in these verses very, very seriously. The tongue has a controlling influence on our lives. And if there be anybody here tonight that doesn't know Jesus Christ, that has not surrendered their life to His Lordship by faith, that is not currently identified with Him, Him being their Lord and Savior, and to the listener who may be an unbeliever, I plead with you to trust in Christ. It's only through trusting in Jesus Christ's perfect work of redemption that any sinner can be saved from God's judgment of their sins in hell. And upon receiving God's free gift of salvation by faith alone, it is only through the sanctifying work of God the Holy Spirit that any sinner can begin to model a Christ-honoring pattern of speech. You want to model Christ-like conduct through what comes out of your mouth? You could never do so if you don't know Jesus. Jesus is the starting point of exercising control over your tongue. If you're not in Christ, it's going to be very, 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 very difficult for you to exercise control over your tongue. Very few can do that. There are some unbelievers, as I mentioned. They're not in Christ, they haven't trusted Christ from the heart, they have an external facade of religion. They found a way to control their tongue. My friends, they are the exception to the rule and like the Pharisees. Though they have an external facade of religion, they are like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. So, my prayer with you tonight, assuming that you're not an exception to the norm, If you don't know Jesus, if you know that your speech pattern is not what it should be, and you know that it likely stems from your unregenerate, unconverted heart, trust in Jesus. Receive His forgiveness of your sins. God's saving, mercy, love, and forgiveness freely offered to all who will call upon the name of the Lord. Be forgiven of your sins and be transformed into His likeness by the Holy Spirit so you can begin to model God-honoring speech pattern in your life. For us who are believers, man, really, really, really make it your prayer to think about what comes out of your mouth, to remember that every idle word, we're going to have to give an account for it. So would that drive us to God for His grace to give us the ability to honor Him with our tongues for as long as we're able to do so? In this life. So having said that, we now reach the conclusion of our formal lesson tonight. And it's time to transition into our season of group discussion. So as normal, bottom of page two in your handouts, you'll notice the discussion questions that are contained on that side of the handout. We're going to work through those, que- uh, those questions in chronological order, so I hope we have a good discussion here. So number one, question one for group discussion. As demonstrated from verse two, why is it so important to ensure that we understand words in a passage of scripture in a way that is consistent with how the author has used those same words elsewhere? First and foremost, before we answer that question, anybody tell me why I would even ask such, such a question? Is there something in our lesson that would give us inclination to think about that? Wit, what do you think? Um, the word "perfect." Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. What about the word "perfect"? Um, in other areas of scripture, the so scripture always imperfect scripture. So you couldn't you couldn't say that a man
0: can be perfect in any way. Right.
1: Okay, so it that word "perfect" in this context would have to. Be
0: yeah, now that's beautiful. And does James use that word also as well? Does he give us any clue about how perfect should be understood? Yeah, what about the word bridal and stumble? Does he use those words also in his letter? Yeah, see head shaking, yes. So yeah, so we have inclination for asking the question. Now I saw Michael and Hannah's hand go up. Huh? We're going to say very similar You're going to say very similar things, things. okay. So basically, scripture interprets. Were you going to say the same thing too, Michael? Okay, well I'm proud of you guys. Um, your hand went up first, so I'm going to make sure I call on you next uh, if your hand goes up first. But um, so to summarize, scripture interprets scripture, and it's clear that the Bible teaches that nobody's perfect except for Jesus, right? If, if anybody else is perfect, Jesus wouldn't need to come into the world to begin with, right? So. Uh, Jesus is the savior of flawed, sinful men and women like you and me. So it's clear that James can't be saying that somebody who never stumbles in what they speak, somebody who never fails to honor God through their pattern of speech, that they're perfect. Because we know that, no, they're not perfect. They're sinful. The Bible teaches that through and through. So there's got to be a different way of understanding this term. Sure enough... That same term in Greek is used elsewhere in James in addition to those other terms. And James gives us clarity as to what he means with that. So that's a perfect example of Scripture interpreting Scripture. And I think that answers our first question quite nicely. So very good, guys. Very, very good. Question two. As a pattern of life, why is the ability to exercise control over the tongue a mark of spiritual maturity? Or just conversion for that matter? <clears throat> so let's start with the first part of the question. Why is it so... like So why is there a connection between exercising control over your pattern of speech and your spirituality? Anna? Um, so when we were kind of diving into that, mm-hmm. I
1: thought about the, the scripture that talks about how, like, our speech is the overflow of our hearts. Mm. And so I went and looked up what those were. Matthew twelve thirty four and Luke six forty two. I thought mm-hmm. up at those. But I didn't even mean, think, like, if you're saved, your heart is going to be convicted over stuff like that. Right. And so, I mean, clearly you're going to have more control over what you're going to say. But right. if you're not saved, then that's not going to matter to you.
0: Right. So... I remember when I first got saved. I used to cuss really, really bad. I played sports. I used to have a terrible um, tongue. Um, talked horribly to members of the opposite sex and um, you know teammates and stuff. You, you know, some of you guys are in athletics. You know how it works in the locker room and things like that. Um, and when I got saved, I began to feel really, really convicted about the way I talked. And I didn't know the scriptures like we've talked about tonight. we made several references to Bible verses that indicate there should be a marked difference between how a believer talks and carries himself or herself in this world and how an unbeliever would do so. Again, as a pattern of life. We noted from verse 2, this isn't saying like every single moment of your life, if you're not perfect in your pattern of speech... Then you're not a Christian. That's not what James is getting at. He's saying that hey, the trajectory of your life, the direction of your life, it should look a certain way as a Christian. And though I didn't have the scripture, I had the Holy Spirit indicating to me, convicting me, hey, you you don't need to talk like that anymore. Like you, you, you're a Christian now, and you're you're talking and acting like you acted. Before you came to know Jesus. And eventually I got the scripture to help reinforce what I was feeling spiritually, emotionally, through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. But that's exactly right. Hannah hit the nail right on the head. The Holy Spirit, who indwells the believer, is going to convict the believer when he or she commits sin. So before you got saved, you, you didn't feel that conviction about your speech pattern. Now that you are saved, God and His grace and His mercy begins to, to really just stir in your heart this idea or this um, this conviction that, hey, you, you don't need to speak like that. It's not honoring to God. It's that's just like the rest of the world. Um, what were you going to say something of that earlier? I was going to
1: say, like, the, the Holy Spirit... If you are saved, you don't have the Holy Spirit. And so that
0: should guide you. Yeah. That's right. Now, this is kind of an obvious corollary question, but I put it in here nonetheless to make sure you're paying attention. Conversely, as a pattern of life, part two of question two, why is the inability to exercise control over the tongue a mark of spiritual immaturity or of potentially being unconverted? Because it shows that you may not have the Holy Spirit. right. James is going to belabor this point in the next several verses of this section in chapter 3. Right there at the end of chapter 3, he's like, can, can a fresh water source supply salt water? You know what I'm talking about. Back here, ver- verses 9-12, uh, through 12, we're really going to get into this in the future studies. But does a fountain send out from the same opening, both fresh and bitter water. Can a fig tree produce olives or a vine produce figs? Salt water cannot produce fresh water. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, listen, like, if the Holy Spirit is the source of your spirituality, that is, if if the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, then the overflow of your mouth should look similar or consistent with that of who indwells you. Right? If If you are able to speak and talk just like the rest of the world does, and you don't think for a second about that, I mean, at the best case scenario, you're a very, very, very spiritually immature believer. But the likely scenario is you don't know Jesus. His spirit doesn't dwell within you. So, good thoughts on that question. Any other thoughts, comments, anything? Very good. So number three, in your opinion, what are some of the most compelling elements of James's illustrations found in verses three and four? What do you think about the tongue's ability to boast about its controlling influence over the human body? I mean, did did you all see what I was getting at first off, I guess, to start this question? I just want to get your feedback here. If you just read that first half of verse five, at least for me, it sounded like James was just saying that the tongue, it just boasts of great things. That is to say that the tongue, it just spews out prideful, arrogant boasting. That's how I interpret it. We, we saw from the Old New Testament, that's true, it does that. But, again, I think narrowly, in terms of what's being said in context, you go, verse 3, it's an illustration about the bit in a horse's mouth controlling the horse. Verse four, the rudder of a ship controlling the ship and then he throws that first half of verse five, the tongue boasts of great things. and he's just used verse three and four to show it's very small devices control large and powerful objects. And then verse five, you've got a small device, the tongue, being able to boast of its ability to control. Something as complex and, and in a comparison standpoint, something as large as the human body. So, what did y'all think about that connection? At least that's, there are several commentators that make that connection, not just me, but what did y'all think about that, That kind of that progression of James? Bit in the horse's mouth, the bit can boast over the ability to control the horse. Rudder in the ship, rudder can boast about its ability to control the ship. Tongue in the body tongue can boast about its ability to control and influence the body. Did y'all see that there?
1: I think mean, like, by diving into, like, the details of that, it really helped me to understand the illustrations better. Because I didn't know what it was either. Can you really explain that? And then whenever you said, like, how big a horse is, and it the that, and, like, the same thing with an order, like, it just puts into perspective.
0: Yeah. Well, think about it. Like, a horse... If you get ran over by a horse galloping, you're a dead man. That thing weighs a thousand, two thousand pounds. You're you're done. If a bit hits you, you might have a bruise. You, you might get knocked out if it got you in the right spot in your head. But I mean, it's not going to probably like give you. You got an extremely rare and limited chance of dying if a horse if a bit hits you compared to a horse. But that little bit. You put that thing in the horse's mouth, it's game over. That horse is is just, it's in bondage to it in a sense. Like that horse is doing whatever that bit tells it to do, right? How about a ship? 60 to 70 times larger the ship is compared to the rudder. And that little bitty rudder in comparison, bigger ships, like you go look at a cruise ship, the rudder's way bigger than you and me. But in comparison to the ship, it's not even close. And that little bitty rudder directs, controls, influences where the ship goes. Our tongue, you know, compared to our body, very small, seemingly insignificant. And when people talk about you, what do they tend to to say? What what, what what is one of the primary, if not the primary thing, when people look at Hannah Rodriguez or Whitmark or Dewey Doval, what is one of, if not the most, primary thing that they're going to say? where well, they say, what kind of man or woman is that? What are they going to think about? They're going to think about what comes out of your mouth, right? That person's a jerk. That person is prideful. That person is, or conversely, that person is tender-hearted. Kind. Encouraging. They're going to draw feedback about what you say and how your tongue directs your life pattern. That's what they're going to talk about. So, the tongue, like the rudder, like the bit, very, very critical in controlling our human lives. Just like the bit for the horse and the rudder for the ship. Okay, last question, number four. And I'm very intrigued to hear your thoughts on this. If we're saved by God's grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone, why do you think Scripture even bothers to place such an emphasis on the relationship between our speech pattern and our eternal destiny? So, Hannah, go for it. What
1: do you think? Well, our speech, like you just talked about, how other people see that. Like that mm-hmm. is one of the primary things people notice about us. And if we're self-proclaiming Christians, that also reflects Jesus. Like our reputation is not our own once so we become followers of Christ. Right. And it's very important to steward that well. Amen. With um, I think since our purpose on earth is to glorify God. We should be, if our tongues control, like our tongues control most of our body, mm-hmm. then, our, then we should be glorifying God through our tongues.
0: Yeah, you know, that's, that's good feedback as well. But let me let me push this a little bit further here. Um, so somebody, let's just say somebody says, "Yeah, listen, you know, we're saved by God's grace. I mean, God is love, and you know, we're free in Christ." So we can just live however we want to live. Um, Doesn't matter what I say. Doesn't matter how I act. God is love. Why do you think Scripture would put? That is true. God is love. We are saved by His grace through faith in Christ alone. That's true. But why do you think Scripture throws stuff in there like that? Like, hey, your pattern of speech—that's going to that's going to demonstrate. On the last day, whether or not you were a true follower of Christ, or like we talked about last week, the warning patterns in Scripture. The warning patterns in Scripture are a means that prompt us to obedience and prompt us to faith in some cases. Warnings about eternal judgment in hell can prompt you to fear eternal judgment in hell and believe in the only Savior that God's provided for sinners like you and me. So why do you think Think about this. Why do you think why do you think scripture has those? This is kind of a review from last week. But why do you think scripture, in the in the sense of our speech pattern, why would it emphasize? Hey, your words really do matter eternally speaking. What do y'all think? That's kind of a. I put that in there. It's more of a challenging question, but um, I think it's an important question that I wanted us all to consider. Before we wrap up tonight, Michael.
1: Uh, it kind of shows like unbelievers to like.
0: No, Michael. I think you're. I think you're on the right track. Let me show you a scripture here. Harper, what do you think, buddy?
1: When you're like, when you say, when you're trying to represent Jesus as like. <clears throat> When you're saying like bad things and stuff, mm-hmm. and you're like a Christian, then people don't. When people when they think of Jesus, and they think of you as a Christian, mm-hmm. and like they're not a Christian, they might like, think like the things you're saying and the bad things that you're that you're not really that
0: good. I, I, yeah. No, I appreciate the appreciate the feedback there, man. Um, listen to what Matthew or what uh, Jesus says in Matthew seven. Verses sixteen and following has very specific and narrow reference and application to false teachers, but broadly this is true of um, those who don't serve as teachers, namely false prophets. So narrow reference to false teachers, false prophets, but broader reference to the spiritual status of all people, whether they're ever going to serve in a teaching capacity or not. Matthew seven sixteen and following. You'll know false teachers by their fruit. You'll know false converts by their fruit. You'll know believers by their fruit. And one of the fruits, one of the evidences that points to whether or not somebody is a true or a false teacher, or whether or not somebody is a true or a false convert, is their speech pattern. It's one of the fruits, it's one of the evidences So, guys, it doesn't matter how much somebody claims to follow Christ. It doesn't matter how much somebody identifies with Christianity. It doesn't matter how long somebody's been a member of a church. It doesn't matter if somebody's a deacon or a pastor. You show me the fruit of their life and ministry, and I'll tell you whether or not they belong to Jesus Christ. And it's not ultimately... I I say I using that as a figure of speech. Christ will be the one to judge in the final analysis. But from our perspective, you have a good inclination unless somebody has played just a really, really good charade for their whole life. And that happens sometimes. That's why, like like I said, Jesus is the one who ultimately knows the heart and will determine on the last day whether or not they are believers or non-believers. But from our vantage point, limited and finite as it is, you look at the fruit of somebody's life, their teaching, their words, gives you a pretty decent idea of where they're at spiritually. That's the point. So, with regard to question four, if we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, why do you think Scripture even bothers to place such an emphasis on on the relationship between our speech pattern and our eternal destiny. Well, your speech pattern is the evidence or the fruit of whether or not you've truly come to know Jesus. And your speech pattern of what can be observable, it bears witness largely from what can be seen from our perspective as to whether or not you're going to spend eternity in heaven or in hell. Again, not because we're saved through the words we speak or through the works that we perform, but because those words we speak are fruit and evidence that point to the state of our heart and whether or not we believe the gospel truly. That's the point. Does that make sense? That's crucial. Because guys, if you haven't seen this already in your life, you're going to see it. You're going to see people, whether it be in your family or in your church or in your school, or in your place of employment, you will see somebody at some point in your life who claims to follow Christ. They may be in a prominent position in the church or in some ministry organization, and yet the fruit of their life will demonstrate contrary to that. And that's a heartbreaking situation when that happens. But it will happen at some point if you follow Christ long enough. So it's important to see and be aware of that connection. Everybody understand? Very good. Well, let's close in prayer. And as usual, more than welcome to stay as late as you'd like to. Um, But if you need to go home, you go home. So let's pray and um, we'll be dismissed. Excuse me. Our Father in heaven, as we've learned during tonight's study, Every human being is subject to the controlling influence of the tongue. And Father, just as the bit controls the direction of a horse, and just as a rudder controls the direction of a ship, so also does the tongue control the course of our lives. And in conjunction with our lifestyle pattern, Father, the tongue controls the way that we are perceived by other people, and it controls the trajectory of relationships we have in this life. We recognize that with our tongues, we have the power to bless or to curse, to advance honesty or to promote deception, to boast in ourselves or to boast in the Lord. And as we learn tonight, Father, even though it is such a small part of our human nature, there are few attributes more significant and more influential in our lives than the tongue. So Father, we pray that you would help us to be consumed with these weighty realities and Father, that we would be extra thoughtful as we leave this place about how we use our tongues in our daily daily lives. Father, it is our prayer that the words we speak on a habitual basis would be a means of pointing others to you and that they would be a means of testifying to the authenticity of our profession of faith. And as we've noted at the end of our lesson, it's impossible, God, for us to model Christ-like conduct through our speech if you don't give us the grace to do so. Father, we are beggars. We are utterly dependent upon your grace in this life, including in how we speak. So God, give us the grace. Give us the ability by your Holy Spirit's enabling to honor you through our speech, through our use of the tongue. And as we leave this place, would we be your good and faithful servants, your ambassadors before a watching community as to what it looks like to live in accordance with your word and to speak that of which points to your character and to how you call us to live in this world. I thank you for every man and woman here tonight, for their families that they represent. I thank you for the study, for the privilege it is To gather together for fellowship and prayer and to sing together and to study your word. I pray you would continue to strengthen our bond of fellowship and our love that we have for one another, and most importantly, in our love for you. We know that it's only because you first loved us that we could ever know you, God, for we are undeserving recipients of your favor. May we never forget that, Father. May that promote genuine religious expression and a motivation to serve you wherever you may call us. Bless us as we leave this place, Father. We commit the rest of our evening to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
1: Amen.